0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello, and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode eight with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Garfinkel talks to Carlos Gallinger about bighorn sheep in California. Hello out there in
1: archeology span podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California, and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel on the eighth installment of the Rock Art Podcast under the Archaeology Podcast Network. And if you have any questions or suggestions about this particular episode or the continuing rock art studies, give me a call or send me an email. You can uh, reach me by phone at 805 312 2261 or at my email by Avram, that's A V R A M 1952. At yahoo.com. We are absolutely honored to have a very unique guest today. His name is Carlos Gallinger. And Carlos is uh, a unique person in my experience, in that he has a remarkable background and has been studying the wild sheep, the uh, desert bighorn sheep of the uh, Great Basin, principally in the Western Mojave Desert for most of his life, and he has uh, studied their habits, their habitat, the associated prehistoric activities of native people in hunting the bighorn sheep, and also in displaying their images both on rock paintings and on petroglyphs, rock drawings. And with that, hello, Carlos. Hello there, Alan. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Great. Great. Well, Carlos, maybe we should take a step back and tell the audience about how you ever became interested in the study and research on bighorn sheep and and where you grew up and how you developed this passion. How's that?
2: Yeah, well, I guess that's what, I guess, differentiates me from many other people is the time I've spent in the field. I was raised basically what they call a free-ranging child. And then most of my working career, I worked 12-hour shifts. So basically I had 14, 15 days of work and the rest of the time off. And I lived in Barstow, so I was right in the heart of Bighorn Sheep Country. Where did you grow up, Carlos? Well, a little bit in Needles, California and Barstow, California. So it's Mojave Desert, for those who are unfamiliar with the names. And then the last 20 years... I only worked like maybe three or four months a year and 12 hour shifts. So even when I worked, I was working 60 days a year. And the rest of the time, I often lived out in the desert and I had a motor home and I I lived out there. And that's kind of what I did. And I got into the bighorn sheep as a young man, really wanting to get into hunting deer. Back then, hunting was kind of normal, whereas now it's You know frowned upon basically so i've had a lot of interesting kind of stories in that way and as i got deeper into it many of my mentors uh, one in particular told me if you really wanted to learn hunting you had to learn archaeology because it was the study of hunter and gatherers and this friend of mine lyle richardson his mentor could often tell me in depth about the environment By me just saying well there's a glyph here or i found a game trail or some description and he could often talk deep about it with having never been there so i started learning this idea of trying to understand the landscape in a traditional way tell us about your your
1: youth i mean i i think you told me at one time that you in fact did spend some time in the newberries as a child am i wrong
2: Yes. Well, my dad worked at at a compressor plant in Newberry and they ended up owning a ranch that was just at the bottom of just the base of Newberry mountains, right below the Newberry caves. And much of my time as, as a younger kid, like when I was, by the time I was five or six, all the way up until I was in high school, you know, a lot of our friends, it was not unusual to get our bows and arrows and just run around like wild men, just crazy having a good time. And it was kind of just what we did. Tell me a bit about the Newberry
1: Mountains. Where are they? What are they? And why are they important to understand in this journey of your life?
2: Well, the Newberries are, is between basically the town of Newberry, which is on Old Sixty Six, and Barstow, and they fill that gap. And it's a rugged, now considered a legally a wilderness but it was so rugged that most of your off-road dune buggies never really got into the interior of the newberries and there was always sheep there it's a remnant herd that is it, it always existed so genetically it has a lineage unbroken lineage back to the ancient times and and, that, and at one point it was down to 25 head it was it was hanging on by its fingernails
1: so you're telling me that at some point in its history the Newberry Mountains that are out in the Eastern Mojave Desert only had
2: how many bighorn sheep about 25 and that persisted for probably 50 maybe 100 years hard to say
1: now I understand that when it gets down to that low there's almost a certainty that that particular population could and could and does become extinct
2: Yes, it it was on its way out. I mean, it was was without a doubt on its way out due to inbreeding.
1: Okay. Now, the Newberry Mountains are also famous for, uh, as you said, the Newberry Caves, and you might want to introduce our audience to what the heck that's all about.
2: Well, the Newberry Caves was a major archaeological site that was excavated, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s, and had a lot to do with laying the groundwork for a great base of archaeology in the whole. And I think you can correct me on this, a period of time known as the Little Peluvial, when many of the petroglyphs were carved and and made and that there was this culture that that ascended that was basic, a bighorn sheep culture, much like the Great Plains would have been the buffalo culture or the Pacific Northwest, the salmon culture and so on.
1: We're talking about a time that's maybe... Oh, let's say uh, three to 4,000 years ago, correct?
2: Yeah, and pre-bow and arrow, pre-bought pottery, as as you well know. Yeah. It had a lot of what they call perishables in this cave. And one of the things that links up to this cave is there's undisturbed campsites going like off into the Ords or the Rodmans. And, of course, the Rodmans have all these beautiful petroglyphs that are of the same era, as well as, as – geoglyphs what's a geoglyph well it's a, a an image or design that's on the ground that's made out of just rocks where they just grabbed mostly in the newberries they're i don't know relatively small rocks the size of a potato maybe uh, or maybe not bigger than a coffee can and they make different designs there's one that i believe is a broken arrow a sheep a sun, for lack of a better term. They're, they're all over these images, and you'll find even uh, a few places of, you know, flakes and things like that, campsites, matatis, and so on.
1: These geoglyphs are like, there's something like almost the Atacama Desert where they they actually take out rocks or put rocks in and actually make rock pictures on the rocks, on that desert pavement, on that right. heavily varnished, basalt and other styles of of rocks on the desert
2: floor, right? That is correct. And that's how even an amateur can look at it and say, well, that's very ancient, simply because it doesn't have the varnish on the bottom. It actually has usually a redder varnish. So it's kind of a no-brainer to actually see it and understand it as an ancient design rather than something done in the 60s or something.
1: But you were saying the Newberry Cave had some perishables in it?
2: Well, it had all kinds of things. It had spears and atlatls and split twig figures. And my assessment of cave site is that it was an ambush site and that there was water at the foot of the cave. And there was also mineral sources right around it. And I've got a long drawn out theory about when you bring mineral sources and water together, it amplifies the value to the animals.
1: So we have this cave in this uh, Newberry Mountains. It has perishables in it. It dates from about four to three thousand years old, and it has all of this material that, that's perishable that that in fact uh, normally doesn't preserve but because it's in a cave it's there. What were they doing there why does why does that cave exist anyways?
2: You know most of the archaeology is is based that it was a religious site and, and without a doubt it was in part that but to me, what you have is a hunting blind ah. that's been preserved. That that the that, that the sandals and the lost arrowheads and the arrow sh- or or shafts and and so on that would never be uh, preserved elsewhere because there are plenty of hunting blinds, but they're exposed to the elements, and so all these other things would just be would be vanished. They're they're gone. They decayed, whereas they were preserved in the cave. So we have you know, a religious site, but we also have a a practical site, a site that was an everyday like, hey, I gotta feed my family kind of site. And the tools of the hunters were there. And one of the things the archaeologists have going through and inventorying all this, they were quick to realize that there was not any any or little sign of, of habitation of women or children. So this was not the main camp. This The Newberry Caves was a place you went to hunt. And hunting was as much a religious activity to these ancient people as as it was a practical. There, there, there was no separation in their mind, I don't think, uh, between the two.
1: Now, this is sort of a hunting site and also a religious site. Was there any images there that were related to the hunt or... Anything that we might be able to
2: understand. Well, yes, there there was the split twig figures, mm-hmm. of which I actually think there's a, a split twig figure representation in the geoglyphs on the on the Rodmans. But the split twig figures, like one of them had a little spear in it, another one had a, a arrowhead wrapped in it, and of course the fact that one of these had each of these, you probably had the others. Many of these split twig figures are fragmentary, so. They probably also had spears or arrowheads or other ideas of the hunt may have had red paint on them in a position of death. Who knows what they might have had. Sometimes the split twig figures do look like they're, they're dead because the, the position of the legs are such that they're, they're kind of closer together at the ends. Mm. And that's what happens when a sheep is dead laying on its side. Ah. In a relaxed position, the legs are a little closer to each other at, at the hoofs. Can you explain briefly what a split twig figurine is? Yeah, it's it's a it's a phenomenon that's actually throughout the Great Basin. You could probably expand on that, but I know it's in the Grand Canyon, quite yes. prevalent. And they would split a twig, I think usually a willow, and just wad it up in such a way as it would make uh, an image of a four-legged animal and almost always given the proportions, it would be a sheep or a deer. Got uh, it. The, the, Got the it. proportions of the legs are different between the sheep and the deer. And most of them to me look sheep going off those proportions. But, y- y- you know, a guy could just have done it a little short or long at one particular time. And, and we wouldn't know that.
1: Now, Now, I thought there was a, Maybe some rock
2: art at Newberry Cave. Am I right or wrong? There is. There's uh, pictographs. No, no petroglyphs, but there are pictographs. And what are those? What are pictographs? They are paintings, basically. Ah. One of them appears to be a sheep, in in there. And then there's a handprint, which is you know universal all over the world. And it's interesting. A lot of the the um, pictographs there tend to be what we would call abstract. We, we don't know what they are. Sometimes glyphs, we know very much what they are. We, 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 it's obvious, you know, that it's a sheep or a person or an addle Other times, we really don't know what is being symbolically represented there. Although through the years, I have found many glyphs that I would have thought was a one-off and due to the miracle of, digital photography, you find out that that actually the the image, it 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 repeats sometimes hundreds of miles away. You you just get it and you look at it and you say, man, that's the same thing. You know, you're you're out in in the Kosos and you see something that you say, man, I've seen that image in the Rodmans, you know, or that symbol. So in other words, I think what you're telling me is that
1: these images, although we might think that they're random, are in fact patterned and constructed on some sort of a template or some sort of a, you know, a regularized predictive uh, example that was meaningful and had, uh, you know, some sort of implication and significance to the person that fashioned it. Am I correct?
2: Yeah. And I think you can look at parallels. You can look at uh, trade languages that the Indians had where they had Three 400 words that were universal to many groups or languages or basically fixed symbols that meant something to everybody. But we'll never know what some of them are.
1: Yes, I agree. Well, maybe in this next segment, we're going to be able to get into uh, the Newberry bighorn sheep and sort of this, this journey, this evolution of what uh, Carlos had done throughout his life to try to assist the herd in redeveloping, uh, existing, and growing.
0: Transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to ZENCASTR.com and use the code ROCKART. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode.
1: Welcome back. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and you're listening to the Rock Art Podcast on the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network. We're honored and blessed to have Carlos Gallinger, a uh, world-class wildlife specialist who is uh, assisting us in understanding the habits and habitat of the desert bighorn sheep and its relationship to the archaeology and rock art of the Mojave Desert. And I think in this next segment, Carlos, I would uh, would really like to know where you went and in, in this odyssey that you developed. How did you uh, go from 25 sheep to somehow enhancing that very small and almost you know, impossible situation to um, bring back the Newberry herd.
2: Okay, well, that's a kind of a long story. We'll try to make it compressed. So to start with, we know that the herd was down that far. They did aerial surveys. And more importantly, I was part of a genetic survey in which we extracted, we, a guy getting his PhD, extracted DNA, sheep DNA from their pellets, their droppings. And I collected those for him. And he did the whole Southern California population of sheep. I mean, all over. Oh, wow. And one of the outcomes of that was that, one, genetically, they were the most inbred of any population, the Newberry herd. Really? And he could actually see that one of the events was the freeway in the 1960s. The DNA Mm. actually had little clocks if you will to not to get too fine a point on it that could he could actually see that the Katy mountains and the Newberry mountains were genetically linked until the 1960s wow now sometime after about probably 1930 1940 due to mining and the depression many sheep herds were wiped out people went to mines Many of the mines that were only worth mining had to be near water. These people were impoverished, and they shot sheep to eat. It was just it was just that simple. And however many sheep came down is how many they shot. And it was just one of them things that, you know, unintended consequences kind of thing. So this persisted clear into the year 2000 or so. And then I got word that there was sheep because I had been gone – all over the West and into Utah and Arizona and studying sheep in a wider range. When I got word that there was sheep at this quarry, now it was kind of odd that there would be sheep at this quarry, but I mean, they were blasting and there was a huge conveyor belt and people and bulldozers. And, but sure enough, I went there and there were sheep there, there every day. It just was am- Amazing. And one of the things to kind of bring the story, because there's a long story, but what I come to realize, uh, it, which is a whole nother, almost could write a book about, that the quarry was blasting and ripping rock up, and that pulverized rock freed minerals, and the quarry people had put water for the sheep. The sheep would come down, They, as they would wet the road, the sheep would come down and licked the little puddles, and eventually they found a, a leaking uh, valve on their water tank. And the sheep would come in every day and get that water. And then after a while, I realized that it wasn't just the water, it was the minerals. And at the same time, we were putting water sources, because of bureaucracy, it getting tough to put water sources in the, in the desert.
1: So, who are you working with when you say we? We put water sources.
2: With a whole group of people, but it would be mostly the Society for the Conservation of Bighorn Sheep, the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, a Department of California Fish and Game, which is now Fish and Wildlife, and and other groups. And the Marine Corps would let us, would actually listen to us. I mean, they would actually. They had a mission on the 29 Palms base to, to, of course, train troops, not take care of sheep. But they actually let us put water sources out there for the sheep. And these groups of sheep were going to be coming off the Newberries. That was the plan, to attract Newberry sheep and then attract sheep from the sheep holes into the 29 Palms. Well, this worked better than we ever thought because the 29 Palms base is shot up pretty bad. With artillery and bombs and all that kind of stuff. But that equals pulverized dirt, and that's minerals. And when we added the water, which was absent, we got sheep. Ah. And this sheep now brought in new genetics from all over because they were connected to the sheep hole mounts, which connects into the Joshua Tree National Park and down into the, the other park there, the Mojave Reserve. So we're bringing in genetics across the 29 palms into the Newberries, And, of course, Newberry genetics was flowing to these other populations, the metapopulations as they call them. So between the new DNA, the new minerals, old mineral sources, mineral sources that have been long, they hadn't had sheep. Like, in, for instance, one of the springs, sheep springs, of all things, that I had known about for 40 years, had never seen a sheep or any sign of sheep there, now has sheep there all the time because the population came up, they rediscovered it, and it's a water mineral source.
1: Did you have to uh, somehow change or develop pre-existing sources to catch water or to
2: further enhance the availability of water, Carlos? Well, we did that. We We did enhance some. Mm -hmm. And we also, but mostly we put in artificial water sources. Ah. For instance, the Newberry Guzzler, which went as one of the first ones, long story on it, but it was put in in 86 as kind of mitigation for the quarry, but in a sense replaced Newberry Springs, which used to be a spring right behind the store at Newberry that's filled a swimming pool. When I was there as a kid in the 60s, it was a swimming pool. This water came right out of the crack in the rock and filled the swimming pool right at the foot of the mountain. Well, you could see that back in ancient times, that would have been, you know, sheep heaven, you know. But it was built up, and then the water table was pumped. And so that all these springs that the sheep had once been able to access were dry. And the mineral sources along with them. So... As we replace these different water sources and, and, and tamarisk growth that had blocked, tamarisk is an exotic plant that sucks a lot of springs dry. We burned them off, chopped them off, controlled them, and many springs or other springs, not many, because we're not talking about a lot of water sources here, but they're critical. And they came back. They came back with water. How
1: many springs do you think are now, or water sources, are now available in the
2: Newberries because of your efforts? Well, natural sources come and go. Like there's one called Shooting Springs. It'll go dry for 10 years at a time, and it's dry now. But the really good sources, maybe six or eight. That's all. Depending on how you count, that's it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And you're talking about an area, how big? How many square miles would the Newberry Mountains or the meta population of the desert bighorn sheep be that are in that particular
2: geographical province? Well, that's complicated, you know, but the, the Newberries, what we call the Newberry population, is really more properly should be called the Ord Mountain population and it in, right now it's active with the east ord west ord and ord mountain to be confusing the rodman mountains and the newberries and if you go from the rodman mountains the far end the the uh, east of them to the end of the west ords you're talking 40 miles 50 miles okay and, and probably just about as wide an area but then they're spilling off like the 29 palms base I consider that the herd starting a whole new population of like 50 to 100 animals.
1: So we're talking about something 50 miles wide by 50 miles long, something For like that. For the
2: main event. The main, main and concentration. Then, and then they're now spilling off into like Lucerne Valley in mm-hmm. that way. And so you probably have three to 400 head in the Newberry Rodman Ords. Now they believe that there's that many. There's that many uh, pretty much how did that happen? was it then when
1: did we see this evolution from twenty five to three or four hundred?
2: It started about two thousand eight two thousand nine <clears throat> when it really started the we really started putting the water out in the the, the uh, twenty nine palms base. they had the water at the quarry and and then the genetics and all this started happening and we got genetics now through captures that show sheep from far genetics from 100 miles away in so, the Newberries. Are-
1: so they attract uh, other animals that that in migrate and then sort of mix with the herd.
2: Yeah, the herds are breaking up and coming together. A, a group of rams might be a big group of rams is 12 in the same way with the ewes, 10, 12 is about all you ever see together. But a lot of times you'll get 10 or 12 together. They'll be together for a week and then just split apart. And, you know, six one way, eight another. And a lot of times an old ewe will just take off on her own or an old ram. Young rams, they'll get kicked out of the ewe herd and they'll go kind of on a soul journey, kind of. You'll find them in the darndest places. <laughs> and they then l- remember, they said, man, I went out here and found this spring. You know, well. <laughs> His ancestors knew about that spring for ten thousand years, but he didn't know about it. Now he goes back and eventually becomes a, a mature ram and decides, you know, I'm just gonna go out that spring and his four or five younger rams go with him. Boom, now they know that where that spring is too. Cool. And so it becomes part of the herd memory. So
1: there's two levels to this this next question. I know it's complicated, but Give me a picture of let's say the pre-contact activities relating to bighorn who hunted them and how many did they get and and then who were the major predators of the bighorn sheep in pre-contact times and then fast forward to modern times talking about what can affect sheep mortality and uh, sheep viability.
2: So there would have been probably two eras of pre-contact, which would have been the little peluvial when they were probably in the thousands, okay. probably 10,000 animals or more. Who knows? I, 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 nobody really knows. And this would have been the time of the Newberry Caves, the petroglyphs, whatever the population, it was probably a large population. Got it. And again, centered on it like the Indians with the buffalo and so on. And the Newberry Cave and the Newberry area, because it had springs and had minerals, had salts, would have been kind of like a conveyor belt to bring animals in. So it would have been a very interesting place because the people could have gone out, killed 10 animals to feed maybe a tribe of 40 or 50, and then a week later go out and kill another 10 animals, and then a week later another 10 animals— because the way the structure of the environment all the way up into the Ords and the Rodmans and the East Ords and West Ords would eventually, in the, in the, habitat, the habits of the animal, animals would have naturally said, huh, I'm going to wander down in here. Oh, there's not many, much activity. And then they'd end up down by the Newberry Caves and get hunted. And then when they got hunted out, another one. So there would have been a kind of a conveyor belt at that time, I believe, of bringing animals in. Now, pri- just prior to contact, we'd call, you know, the 10th century or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Some, you know, before Columbus or even after Columbus. So A.D. AD 1000, it, A.D.
1: 1500. Uh, 1500. Yeah,
2: there, there would have been and really right up until the 1880s. Mm-hmm. The Native Americans still would have hunted that. But the Newberry Caves wouldn't have had a water source. Uh. The sheep would have had to come down into the other Newberry Springs the population was lower because the desert was under more severe conditions, and then the Native Americans were probably mostly situated they lived along the Mojave River, probably at that time more than newberry caves area
1: because there's there's water with water there, yeah
2: there was water there, but the Newberry caves kind of show a very limited occupation during the time of the bow and arrow,
1: definitely now. What what animals are the key predators, the natural predators, independent of human hunting, Native American hunting that might uh, affect the numbers of bighorn that existed in the in the desert?
2: Really, you know, human beings, when they were really dependent on them and really the only other one that was significant would be the mountain lion. Okay, the bobcat and the coyote, they will pick off stuff, you know, when they can. But I've actually seen bobcat and coyote either ignored or actually run off by by sheep. Where, uh, in fact, one time I seen one where they stomped one to death, oh, uh, a Henry. young coyote. Woo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't actually see the action, but I was there probably ten minutes after it happened.
1: <laughs> so those bighorn sheep can be mean.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've seen one time right. a, a couple of ewes and they had lambs. Uh-huh. And they were on pretty flat ground, and there was a bobcat following them. Uh-huh. And it was a young bobcat, and he was sneaking and doing all this like stealth stuff. And they were like turning their back on; they were ignoring him. Like they wouldn't they they wouldn't let him get close. Got it. But you could tell they were not freaked out about him. If, if he had tried to pounce, he had gotten the short end of that.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's take a break. When we come back, let's let's do a fast forward into modern times and talk about what happened to the to that Newberry herd and uh, what's been going on lately. <laughs>
0: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show.
1: Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeological Podcast Network. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, uh, president of of the California Rock Art Foundation sponsoring this uh, podcast. This is the third and final segment. We've got Carlos Gallinger talking about bighorn sheep and the newberries, and about uh, bighorn sheep rock art and the uh, religious activities that Native people are associated with bighorn sheep. And what happened to that bighorn sheep herd from almost – being decimated and becoming extinct to absolutely proliferating. So, Carlos, why don't we fast forward to uh,
2: somewhat of the modern times? How's that? Yeah, so that kind of brings up to modern times and kind of what I've long been trying to understand the the land and the animals in a traditional-based way. Of course, I'm a modern hunter, and I don't have the prospect of hunger and starvation, You know, looming over me, or going back to my family and saying, you know, to my wife, give me that little cup of seeds you got, and I'll eat it. And maybe tomorrow I'll bring food, or the next day, you know, I don't. You don't have that, which the ancient people often hunted with a level of desperation that we don't have. You know, but also they tried to integrate themselves to this the the world, the creation, the universe. In ways that we sometimes forget. For instance, in later times, not the time of the glyphs, many of these men would have hunted bighorn sheep with a horn bow. A bighorn bow made out of a bighorn with a snoo from the from the bighorn. And you can only imagine trying and, and wrapped in a, a serapi of a bighorn with a headdress. And you can only imagine the the, uh, the sense of integration. That these guys had, you're hunting with a hornbow, or or you got you're you're trying to fake the sheep that you're a sheep, so you gotta behave like the sheep. You have
1: a sense of veneration and religious association for the bighorn.
2: Yeah, you because the, the from practicality you have philosophy, and that's just a step. Philosophy is just another name sometimes for religion. You know. So this still exists amongst modern hunters. Now, many modern hunters are, are clueless and many, a lot of people that they like to go out and hike and do things. They don't have that sense of, of the cosmos. But a modern hunter, he's trying to dress to look like the very earth. I mean, when I get out with other hunters, you kind of look and say, well, is his camo better for this than mine? You know, I've been with modern hunters. In fact, one, uh, it, one of the hunts in the Newberries, we were making the stock. And all of the, there was—it's it, a long story—but there was a lot of us there. It was a guided hunt. There was probably about eight of us making the gu- making the move to choke up on this animal that turned out to be a very large trophy animal. Let's 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 ba- let's back
1: up for one one complete second, and let's tell the audience what happened in terms of to allow us to even hunt after there hasn't been an approved hunt in a century in the Newberry Mountains.
2: Well, they went from twenty-five animals to about 400. 400 and then they were, animals, and they had a what they call a lamb to ewe ratio. Do you have? I mean, you have a hundred ewes or females. How many lambs survive? Okay. That's called the the, the lamb to ewe ratio. Okay. And the Newberries was hitting sometimes because they were helicopter surveying. Yes. We were getting anywhere from sixty to seventy lambs per ewe. Ew, you hundred lambs. Seventy lambs, as much as seventy lambs per one hundred ewes, which is which is huge, right? Which is huge. It's an exploding population. You can get by on like ten, you know. If you have a ten lambs that survive per one hundred ewes, you're you're eh, you're getting okay. You you won't wipe out, but you're not doing good. You're probably going down a little bit.
1: So you had almost a population explosion going on going on in the New Bears.
2: We ha- Well, it was a population explosion, and so it was opened up to hunting just recently, and I was on this hunt. I was invited because the people knew that I understood the new berries, and what I was getting at is kind of how it, it, you, you see it. We were making this stock. What do you mean stock? Well, we'd seen the animal. We decided to try to make the kill, and we were closing in, and there, were, most of us weren't going to get that close, but we were closing in. And as we did, the wind shifted, and without a word, you could see everybody with just a sense like of 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 fear and freezing, like everybody just froze. And today, that's not a common understanding. Most people will backpack, and they won't. The wind could shift this and that, and they're oblivious to it. But yet, the wind shapes the mountains. It shapes the behavior of the sheep. It's an invisible force that is made visible to those who understand it. Got it.
1: Explain to the audience, though, why the hunt was approved and what animals are allowed to be hunted in order to, I guess, reduce the population selectively so that they could remain vital, vibrant and reproduce.
2: Well, the it kind of comes in with a conversation we actually had the other day. OK. The population is usually 50-50, 50 rams, 50 ewes, male, female. And maybe only 10, 15% of the rams breed in any mm. one, one year. And many okay. of them will breed for about five years if they're lucky. So if you get an inbred group, that one ram is pretty much breeding his daughters and his granddaughters. Uh-huh. And so you, if you take them out of the population, there's actually some benefit to it. There's a formula where the line crosses the eye and all this. California's got a weird one, of course, but you got to take a big ram. You can't take a ewe or a lamb or anything like that. So when you say
1: a big ram, it's an old ram, isn't it?
2: Right. The other day when you called me, yes, we were going up into the, the Newberries, actually, mm-hmm. not that far from the caves Okay. Uh, to check on a ram. We'd got there the day before. We were to scout out to pool, fill water for them. And there was this big ram and he was dying oh, he, wow. and it, he, he made it to the water source and we walked up to the wall. We didn't even notice him right off the get go. He was, he, he was laying there in the dirt, eyes closed. He just barely opened his eyes to, to acknowledge our existence. Uh-huh. I walked right up to him and finally he stood up, but I mean, he just barely stood up dirt in his mouth. He was just, on his last legs, I, no sooner than I turned my back to him, he just collapsed right in, the, right in his tracks. He was, wow. and of course, he was a big, nice ram. I've got some pictures of him, uh-huh. and this is the kind of thing that it, you know. Instead of just having an animal die like that, we can harvest him, as we call it, and yes, and there's a lot of money brought in from people trying to get this tag. I've tried to get the Newberry or a sheep tag in California for 36 37 years mm-hmm. and have never been able to do it.
1: So in order to hunt legally, you must obtain a
2: tag, and to
1: obtain a tag, usually you must pay a price, correct?
2: Well, you pay 2 there's several ways. You, you you enter a lottery, it's like 10 20 bucks a year. If you get it, then you pay another 250 bucks and you go to a class. And then after the class you're given a tag and you can get one mature ram. Out of a particular zone, not just anywhere. And the Newberries was opened up out of the 400 some animals, mind you, 400 plus another 50 or 100 in the 29 Palms Bay. So pushing 500 animals, we had six tags. I see. And that was considered a lot, actually. I was on two of those hunts and... I tell you, one of them, I was in an area that had a lot of Indian hunting camps. There was three father and son teams there at the kill. I was there, and I had been there with my father, and there was just kind of a lineage, at least in my mind. I I was almost in tears walking back. We got back late at night. It it was a long, long, drawn-out hunt and stock, but it was well worth it, and it was just— You'd have to understand the the land in the ancient way to really appreciate that, you know, that you were there, the ancient people were there, they were there with their own lineage, where some hunter was saying, my father taught me this about this place, my grandfather taught me this, and I heard my great-grandfather killed a sheep right on that, and so on. And that was how it was in the ancient times, and it just was really to see— the ancient way is still there.
1: so, in other words, you had that same sort of tradition and generational connection, some sort yes. of almost an, a cosmic or ethereal tether connecting you to the native people and the land and the animals who, who walk the land and the wind.
2: The wind, the phase of the the phase of the moon, the temperature. The, the condition of the plants, when a wash ran the last time, all this kind of stuff. It's almost a religious experience. Yeah, it, because it's all consuming. Every plant, every rock. In this place, there was no glyphs that I know of, but there are matatis and places where they were working and tuning up the tips, their, their arrowheads, yeah. their spear points. Wow. And so it you, when you get this kind of stuff, you begin to realize that... There's a depth to it, and I think that's what the glyphs is a doorway to understanding that because they're not random in their placement, and they're not random in the sense that they're just a squiggly, doodly line. They they actually had meaning. They were made by a particular human trying to convey a particular thought, and that's a thought. When you see that glyph, that's somebody's thought in a, in a given time and place in a given time like within minutes somebody somebody said i need to put this symbol this this message and i know that it's going to last longer than me so when we think
1: about rock art even in the in the desert west especially if there was one particular animal symbol that is the number one symbol found on certainly rock drawings petroglyphs it is the bighorn sheep isn't it
2: yeah, by far. Now, there's lizards I've seen and and deer. Deer show up from time to time. There's stuff that people think are quail feathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a what is almost certainly a Gila monster. And there's other animals that show up once in a while. But as a motif and something that's really anchored in, in, in their mainstream culture, it's the bighorn sheep. And why do you think that
1: that was the case? What is it about the bighorn sheep that has such an obsession or passion for people a, a symbol and what what would be the draw what would be the motivation for people to be so fixated by the image and the being of a bighorn sheep?
2: Well, it it's it gets to masculinity, it gets to, you know, religion, the the bighorn would have been the one of the biggest animals there to to actually get him, they're very elusive. You you have to be physically fit, mentally fit. You have to, to, to bring home a bighorn sheep into the camp would have been proof that you were you were in tune with the cosmos, both in a s our scientific kind of understanding, but also in the philosophical and spiritual understanding of those people, because you couldn't have done it without it. If you didn't understand the wind, if you couldn't say, well, the moon was this, so, uh, you know, shining bright or dim or so the sheep might have behaved in this way last night. If you weren't in cosmic you know, tune, you could you can't hunt a sheep. You, you'll, you'll fail. And so it, it, it is a status. It is a trophy. It was a tr- it's a trophy now. And it was a trophy back then. But now the trophy has kind of a negative connotation to it, whereas in their world and in the hunting world, the modern world, that's a status symbol that means something because of what the sheep is, because to outsheep the sheep is something. Most people today will never go into the field and say, I'm trying to get real close to a desert bighorn sheep and succeed in it. That is a very difficult thing to do. And so you see it in the art. Now, a lot of the art, you see ewes and lambs. and But the rams are often with horns way out of proportion uh, for their body size. So we know that, that this was a status, you know, a male, just like, you know, eagle feathers for the Great Plains. The eagles didn't fly down and, and you know, sell their feathers for two dollars or something you had to hunt (laughs) eagles and and if you were out on the great plains to hunt an eagle to success was was an accomplishment you you just didn't you you didn't you didn't do it for food
1: so carlos what's the what's the takeaway from all of this how can uh, someone perhaps access more information since we're kind of closing in on the uh, the uh, end of our third round here can uh, they get a hold of you?
2: Yeah, for a lot of this, you can go for more in depth uh, stuff. You can go to my website, which is thewayofthings.org, and I got articles and videos that are along these lines. And for something more lighter, I have a Facebook that's The Way of Things, or you can look it up by my name, Carlos Gallinger, and it's usually just, you know, maybe a sentence or a photograph or maybe just a paragraph in in scope.
1: Well, Carlos, it's been a great treat for our audience and for me as well to uh, hear your lifelong perspective on uh, Bighorn Sheep. With that, all you folks out in podcast world, thanks for tuning in. Have a
0: good week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
1: Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to com slash members for more info.